and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia Prince. And I'm Serena Chen. This week, we're going to talk about pseudonyms, or fake names, or, you know, your handle, your gaming handle, like that kind of counts sometimes too. Because there's a lot of different circumstances, ranging from when authors use pseudonyms to maybe be taken more seriously as a particular type of author, to when people on LinkedIn uh, change maybe their gender, maybe other aspects about themselves. It's an interesting way of letting the internet and letting like the really common way of being able to do things at a distance help us change how we are perceived in ways that might not otherwise have worked if we were doing everything as face-to-face. Of course, historically, people like George Eliot had to use pseudonyms in order to get anything published ever uh, because they were women, and women just didn't write that good, really, as we can clearly see by people like the Brontes and Jane Austen. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Um Also, the use of blinded CVs, the idea that our names don't actually mean that much about us, but people assume a lot of things when they use it. So I think to kick us off, um, Serena, I know you've mentioned a couple of times that you've considered changing your name to something that less obviously uh, signifies your race and gender. Do you want to talk us through that process? So I guess, I don't know if you know this already, but um, Serena is not my legal name. It's not my given name. Oh, I have um, no idea. <laughs> oh, okay. I keep forgetting who I've told and who I haven't told. I've got the the classic New Zealand immigrant story of, um, you know, being born in another country, China, um, having a Chinese name given to me by my parents, and then moving here and, you know, choosing a new name for myself that's an English name. And I think... Like, when I first moved to New Zealand, I used my Chinese name for a a few years, and it was... I don't know how to say this lightly. Like, when you move to New Zealand, it's very clear that, like, as someone who is Chinese, you're different, and you're not... that difference is not necessarily celebrated. Especially, you know, cruel kids at school kind of thing. It becomes very clear that being Chinese is not something that you want to be. And so there's a lot of whitewashing that goes on, not just, you know, externally imposed, but eventually internally imposed as well. And it got to a point where it's like, okay, I'm sick of people pronouncing my name wrong and making fun of my name. And I'll just do the thing that everyone else does, which is I'm just choosing an English name for myself. So that's how I've came to be um, referred to as Serena. And, like, that's been basically my name for the majority of my life now. So I guess, like, in a big way, I... The majority of my life uh, has been lived under a pseudonym, because that's not really my given name. Oh, would you change your name legally? I don't know. I've thought about it for a long time. Um, I've thought about this maybe as far back as ten years ago. Because, you know, it's the name that I use every day. It's the name that everyone refers to me by. But every time I... I think it's a mixture of me being just not very good at getting (laughs) bureaucracy done. And also, I feel like I might be erasing a part of my identity, erasing a part of my history. Even if I were to use my given name, it's like a middle name or something. Like, it's it's still my name. Just uh, not what people here refer to me by it's what my parents refer to me by 
Yeah, it's weird. Um, and I also, like, throughout my life have considered changing my name to something that's um, maybe a little less feminine. Um, I've considered not legally changing it, but, like, using pseudonyms that are less feminine, using pseudonyms that don't obviously convey the fact that I am Chinese, mm. which I haven't really done, except for when I have, <laughs> uh, which is usually when I want to undertake projects that I'm not so sure about. Like if I make music, um, it's not very good. I don't kind of want to base my ego, if you will, around that. I just want to be free to experiment and do something new and fun. So a lot of those projects are under just random names, which is nice because you have the freedom to do that on the internet. No one knows that you're a dog, right? So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's nice to just be able to have that kind of possible anxiety lifted off of you. Have you done a similar thing? Have you used a pseudonym online to free you to do something new? I mean, not really. So, like, certainly when I was younger and on forums and stuff and everyone's like, don't meet strangers off the internet because <laughs> they're all terrible. And, I mean, nowadays we call strangers on the internet to bring us food to our houses. So, like, yeah, I went through that stage where I use, like, handles online. Mm -hmm. um, I think I pretty much always used my name, like, everywhere. So, um and suddenly I have the advantage that my name is, like, obviously white. <laughs> um, although I do, strangely, in Australia, I get a lot of people being like, oh, so you're Greek? And it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Australia's weird about Greek immigrants. <laughs> um, I'm not, but thank you. Because <laughs> um, Sophia is a traditionally very Greek name. Mm. My parents, so my first name is actually hyphenated, which is probably the closest I come, and in my current role they've used my legal first name and my legal last name to create my email address which means my email address is sophia-louise and explaining that to my colleagues was like such an uphill battle because people yeah. just aren't ready for hyphenated first names like, <laughs> really okay but no it's like i've just i've always been sophia friends and i think part of that is the fact that like i mean obviously my race but also i was very much raised to be like the proud of my family um mm. if not like explicitly then certainly implicitly i come from two very old new zealand farming families uh my great great grandfather's so on my french side uh started the southland gold rush got enough gold and bought a sheep farm which is you know the classic new zealand story uh, he was the first person to find golden orapuki, um, which always makes it quite funny. Like uh, the one time I went down to hospital in Dunedin, the triage nurse knew like my cousins, and she was like, "Oh, they're excellent people. Here, I'll get you a bed." And it's like, "Oh, this works out quite well for me, doesn't it?" <laughs> um, I think the one point was when I was leaving home, my mum was sort of like, "If you want to use, you know, my name, like you know, which I currently have as a middle name." Um, you can hyphenate your last name. And I just kind of looked at her for a minute. I'm like, I'm not having two hyphenated like, names. That's <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, but I also really like having my mom's family as part of my name as well. Um, but just generally, like, both the Francis and mom's family, the Simpsons, are ridiculous people who choose suffering occasionally so like one of my friend's ancestors was a hotshot lawyer in london and was like no i think i want a farm in gisborne 
uh, did not know how to farm, nearly died like five times in oh, his first no. year in New Zealand, and yet somehow uh, did all right <laughs> eventually. Um, but like those, that's all included in the fact that I'm Sophia Franks. Like I place meaning and value on my name, and like my first name, Sophia Louise. Like that means wisdom warrior and. It's not a family name. So my brother has a name that, like, um, I think one of my grandfathers had and one of my great-grandfathers had. And my parents called me Sophia Louise because, as my mum puts it, if she called me Athena, I would have got bullied. Um, Athena is a beautiful name. <laughs> yeah, but also primary school kids are not great. <laughs> primary school kids are horrible. Mm, this is true. Those are sort of two names that, like, carry a lot of weight for me. Like, just spirit, spiritual meaning, I think, is probably the mm. best way to put it. I've always had, like, whenever I think about names and, like, my name and where my name comes from, it's very tempting as someone with the surname Chen, um, which, like, a bajillion other people in the world also have, to think, oh, I could just change this and, you know, feel like more like myself, be more unique, stand out from the crowd a bit, um, not get confused with the, like, 50 other Serena Chens in the world. Um, there's probably more. <laughs> But every time I think that, I hesitate to go through with it because in China, your first name um, often relates to your ancestral home. So first name in China is surname. So sorry, in China, your family name often relates to your ancestral home. So it's not like with a lot of Western names, your family name is passed down. In China, a lot of the times people's surnames would be the the man from Chen or the man from Tao. It's like it denotes where you came from, it denotes where your ancestors came from, it denotes your hometown, essentially. And that's where surnames in China first came from. Mm. So like when we visited China two years ago with my family, and I was visiting for the first time in 17 years, uh, we went back to my dad's old hometown, which was actual farmland, middle of nowhere, villages, and we drove around these like barely formed roads and we drove past this river and there was this river named Chen and it's like, oh, that's where your surname comes from. And I was like, holy shit, no way. That's a link, if loose at best, to my ancestry, which is something that I have very little connection with so every time you know I think about maybe changing my last name because it's so freaking common I don't it's one of the only links I have it's kind of amazing how much deep connection there is within just names um if you're comfortable talking about it and you absolutely don't have to be how do you feel about the lack of connection to sort of your history weird really weird (laughs) I don't yeah. think I've quite come to terms with it yet because I'm still unlearning a lot of the racism that I learned growing up. Mm. So it is, it's strange because I feel like a lot of the times I feel like I'm torn, not torn, just hanging in limbo between two cultures, which is not all the time because I think because I grew up here, and all my values are from here and the people around me here in New Zealand, I'm 100% 
a New Zealander, really. Uh, I know very little about Chinese culture, about Chinese history, apart from, you know, the odd things passed to me by my parents. But um, when I visited China, it was very much like I am a foreign person in a foreign country, and I don't understand anything here. I don't understand the customs, I don't understand the way people behave. Everything was foreign. And it's weird to feel that and then come back to New Zealand and, um, you know, still get the occasional go back to China comment on the street. So that's weird. <laughs> and I'm very slowly trying to learn more about Chinese New Zealand history. Um, I recently read K.M. Ng's book, Old Asian, New Asian, which I think everyone should read. I learned a lot about New Zealand Chinese history from that that I never knew because there's essentially zero writing on it. So that was that was an incredibly good read and I'd recommend that for literally every New Zealander, no matter what your background. Yeah, it's just it's a strange feeling to not be quite sure of your identity and not have any media in which to relate to or any media to try and help you come to grips and come to terms of what your identity is, what your background is. Um, yeah, it's it's a strange feeling. <laughs> I'm not sure how quite to describe it. No, I think you've done really well describing it just now. I know certainly I have always been very grumpy in like those horrible discussions about the Treaty of Waitangi where people are like, well, you know, like, white people have been here for so long, mm -hmm. surely we're New Zealanders now too. And it's just like, but, I mean, so have so, so have Chinese people. Like, the bulk of mm -hmm. white people came across during the gold rushes, as did Chinese people. Mm -hmm. And there's always this, like, unwillingness to engage with the idea that maybe people who aren't white belong in New Zealand as much as people who are. And it's just kind of like, oh, good, yes. Do enjoy being reminded how racist New Zealand is, although <laughs> at least I have the option of ignoring it, where I guess you don't. <laughs> I feel like Chinese New Zealanders do try and ignore it, and I think that's a big part of the problem, is that from a history of trying their best to be um, quiet and uh, not to cause too much trouble, you know, the, the classic Chinese New Zealander thing to do is to start your own business, um, whether it be farming, whether it be a dairy, whether it be a fish and chip shop, and work really, really freaking hard and just not cause too much trouble in the neighborhood. And that's essentially a survival tactic, but it's problematic in itself. When I do talk about these issues with other Chinese New Zealanders, it's very rare that they want to talk about it at all. It's very rare that they want to acknowledge the racism. It's very much like a, they've got their own thing going on, we've got our own thing going on, let's just, let's not rock the boat too much. Uh, which can be frustrating, but I, I can see where they're coming from. It's a survival technique, and it's kind of worked in the last 200 years, so... Yeah, I mean, it's similar to the um, model minority thing that's seen quite a lot in the US. Yeah. Where, like, the... Um, attitudes and behaviours of essentially people from Asia in the US are often juxtaposed against that of black people. And it's like, but these mm. people are fine with it. And it's like, 
okay, they're probably not. <laughs> they're yeah. just not like they're not talking to you about it, and also weren't slaves. Like yeah. <laughs> totally different. Yeah, but this I think it can be really harmful essentially this idea of being like a model minority and certainly you yeah. get backlash against it as well like I think we talked about it ages ago how like every so often like mums from Epsom will be like too many Asian girls are getting good marks the exam is clearly biased <laughs> nope they're just under a lot of pressure to perform <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah have you thought about maybe taking on any pseudonyms in your life being sort of non-binary slash gender flux, like, I've definitely, like, as I've been coming to terms with my gender not being hard and fast female, like, I consider that. Um, so mm-hmm. I also happen to know that if I've been assigned male at birth, my parents would have called me Alexander. So I have, like, a name there ready to go. <laughs> such great names. Your parents have such great names. <laughs> Well, so Alexander's derived from my mum's name, so my mum's called Sandra. Mm. Um, so, like, everything except the name I was actually given, so, um, is, like, an old family name, uh, which is very, it's very white, really. Like, it's very Western <laughs> to do that. But, yeah, so I definitely sort of tossed that up as I was sort of coming to terms with, you know, my gender identity and how I wanted to present that and, like, essentially who I wanted to be. And generally throughout that, I came to the conclusion that firstly, like, I fucking love my name. Like, I think Sophia Louise is a goddamn baller name. It's a great name. I've also definitely lived a life that epitomizes that name. Mm. Um, Every so often, uh, mum will give me shit when I'm really stressed out about something and she'll be like, you know, we called you Sophia Louise to make your wisdom warrior like a fighter. But I think you've actually just become a wisdom warrior, like someone who's very anxious. <laughs> and it's like, oh, thanks, mom. But yeah, like I have, I've lived a life that's weirdly in line with the name I was given, and so I want to retain that name and keep it, and I much rather use that and sort of have to, you know, like correct people my gender identity. And like that discovery definitely came along the same time where I was like, actually, I'm comfortable with sort of how I present and how I like you know, engage with the world and, like, I probably don't want things like testosterone or top surgery to, like, find my purest gender identity. Realistically, my gender identity is how I relate to myself rather than, Mm. like, how I want to engage with anyone else. So, like, you know, like, I have a binder that I wear sometimes because it is comfortable as hell. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I, you know, can sometimes present more masculine or more feminine, but... Yeah, those sort of realizations all kind of happened at the same time a couple of years ago where it was like, oh, okay, like, I don't necessarily mind if I'm perceived by the larger world as being a cis woman. I'm not. And me knowing that I'm not is the most important thing there. Mm. Um, I also think that uh, if when I get married, I probably, it would be a long shot for me to take someone else's name. Yeah. (laughs) I've had the same thought. Especially when, like, friends around you are getting married and taking people's, like, taking their husbands' names. I keep thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't think I could do that. Look, I think I might. It depends on, like, how much I like my partner's name. And, I mean, certainly <laughs> there's the option, like, how um, Libby and Hayden, great news, just chose a new name. <laughs> just amazing. Just beautiful. 
I do love the idea of team names. Like yeah, we're a yeah. team now. This is our name. Um, Zach Wiener Smith and his partner, who uh, he writes SNBC, and his wife is a very smart, very good scientist whose name escapes me. I believe one of them came with the last name Smith, and the other one came with the last name Wienerman. And so they were just like, "What if we just put our names together and got Wiener Smith?" <laughs> Which is like, it's a very, it's a very nice approach to it. Yeah, it's like a more elegant approach than hyphenation. <laughs> or as one of my friends in Melbourne has, just two last names, legally. Yeah. There's no hyphen. You could do that. There's just a space between them. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently you can. It makes his life very difficult a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I mean, when it comes to writing, um, I think if I, with my current job, was writing something very risky, I would probably do it you know, anonymously. Mm. Generally in the past, like I haven't really had to worry about that. And certainly like, I think my viewpoints tend to, that I write about, my viewpoints that I write about tend to fall along the sort of like mainstream, vaguely left lines. Yeah. I think writing would be the only thing. I mean, historically writing is where it's happened, right? Yeah. Would you, would you write under a pseudonym? Write under a pseudonym. Is that similar to how you approach different projects? Like if you were, you know, yeah writing something very risky. <laughs> I think what I would quantify as risky is probably <laughs> creatively risky. Like okay. I think if I had a a view on something, I wouldn't mind writing it under my own name. I I know that like these things can like get used against people and people can dig up receipts and I know that like I'm still learning and it could be very could very much be the case that like in the future I'll change my mind and realize how awfully wrong I was but I think that progression is important to show that you know people grow so I'm not too worried about writing possibly risky opinions under my own name yeah I am worried about creating shitty work under my own name <laughs> like so like I, I currently do this with music I like I just like write shitty songs and they're not that great so um you know, I'll, I'll put them under a pseudonym, which I'll then share because I want feedback on it. And then I'll then change the pseudonym so no one can find it again. So I've just <laughs> got like this long list of just random names that I've made up to put work under. So like if I were to do creative writing and I wasn't so sure about it, I would probably publish under a pseudonym. Yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I think this is my ego kicking in. Like I don't like the idea of shitty work being possibly trace back to me <laughs> but it exists oh it exists the example i can probably speak most to is um erica chan who is a lawyer in melbourne who is also a science fiction writer and she wrote mm. under the pseudonym lee s hawk and she will hopefully be a guest on our show at some point she said yes but i also haven't arranged like any time for her to skype in uh her reasoning behind that is sort of like there's a number of things but one of them is the fact that like people assume that science fiction writers will be, like, manly men. And mm, that's, you yeah. know, not great for a number of reasons. But it also means if she is a – I think she has two or three collections of books out. Um, she seems to write sort of novellas. Beginning her career, like, more than fair enough to <laughs> just kind of put it under a pseudonym so her books sell, which mm. I can get behind. And the other sort of reasoning is that, like, it helps keep her – lawyer life and her writing life separate yeah so essentially whenever someone like googles her as a lawyer 
they don't come across like all of these science fiction books, which like is fair enough because SEO optimization also needs to happen for lawyers. Um, And I sort of understand both those reasons quite well. Although I am of course sad that like this incredible science fiction writer who is a um, Asian Australian woman isn't known as that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I want her to be famous (laughs) because I really like her books and like, (laughs) um, and yeah, like I'd much rather she is known as who she is rather than writing under, you know, Lee as Hawk. Yeah. It's fascinating how much in the world of today with, you know, the internet being quote unquote forever, it's fascinating how much we all have to think about brand control. Yeah. <laughs> for like our own personal brand and how like what we're essentially doing is making sub brands or like child brands. It's kind of like how Coke owns Sprite and Fanta and like, yeah, I don't know, L and P or something. Like <laughs> all these different brands because you need to um, compartmentalize what audience reaches what brand. But at the end of the day, it's all you. That's that's so weird. We had a talk actually as part of our induction at where I currently work. And it was just like, figure out what your personal brand is and like how are you gonna sell that and what your fame agenda is. And like I understand That's so weird. The underlying meaning behind that, even yeah. if I don't necessarily agree with the jargon. But also like I've realized at some point in any one of these talks where people are like, consider your branding. Like <laughs> that my brand is that I'm a gay, angry scientist. Beautiful. And I just sort of live that. Like <laughs> it's like, oh, how do you live your brand? Well, I've made my brand exactly who I am. <laughs> like sold. Yes. Done. <laughs> I mean, like, to an extent, SEO has just worked very naturally for me. So like I am alongside like my sort of scientific journalism writing and uh, my other work and my speaking. I'm also like an internationally published poet, but over the last five years, as I've got like quite a good profile for, you know, my writing work and my speaking work, my advocacy work, it's just fallen further down the Google hits. Mm. (laughs) And so it's like people don't necessarily find like, you know, the fact that like I have been published in Canada when they look up my work. And that's so cool. Well, it's, yeah, it's. Well, I think that's fantastic. (laughs) Well, no, like, it is. It absolutely is. Like, I'm proud of it. And, like, I definitely want to get back to entering haiku competitions again Hmm. and writing more. It's just sort of like I need to decompress my thesis for, like, probably another six months or so. Yeah. But also, like, it's so divergent to what I currently do. And I guess that's what people mean by, like, branding. It's like I have this sort of core, like, gay, angry scientist brand. (laughs) And then, like, poetry doesn't really fit into that yeah yeah it's it's hard because what the internet essentially wants you to do is to you know carve out your niche and be good at that but as human beings we have different interests multifaceted individuals yeah yeah i get this a lot where um i'll tweet about something on twitter i'll rant about i don't know web development something very specific to CSS or I don't know something like that and then like amassed a lot of followers who like that kind of content um and then when I post shitty memes and jokes about my life (laughs) it's like people are confused it's like no I enjoy all these things yeah well I mean um Katie Mack uh famous astrophysicist has made the comment a few times that like 
people often follow her for her physics chats mm. and then kind of go like whenever she talks about politics or her sexuality are just like why are you talking about this they came here for science and she's like weirdly scientists are people yeah <laughs> i don't know what you expected <laughs> it's strange how we treat people like publications now we treat them like content generating machines that we want to be entertained by be yeah. informed by it's like no <laughs> And I think we feed into that to an extent. We do. And I think journalists are the worst at this. Like, there are so <laughs> many journos roughly my age who have Twitter feeds that are essentially just, like, either them, like, sort of promoting their work or, like, literally mm-hmm. live tweeting for work, both of which I can get behind, or um, it's just, like, constantly trying to create good content. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, yeah, I don't, I don't use Twitter for this, but you go for that. <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. It just it just feels a bit strange that we're self policing our own I don't know thought stream, if you will, for that. And it comes naturally, and we all do it. And I know I do it. And I have been like considering making like a private Twitter. Um, I have one, yeah. as you know. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good idea. But I also um, realized that I wouldn't have the mental capacity to be able to sort what goes into my private Twitter and what goes into my public one. So everything goes into my public one. Mostly I just angst on my private Twitter whenever I'm, like, really angry about something that's super specific to a person who I may or may not, like, follow on Twitter. Or, like, Mm. essentially, like, if I can't turn it into a positive moment, I'll put my depression on my private Twitter. Mm. Essentially. And, like, I mean, that is also feeding into the problem where it's, like, we see people's best lives on Facebook and so everyone feels like they're struggling alone and I try really hard to be open about that but I'm also uncomfortable Mm. with just like being depressed like I want to I want to be the person that I needed when I was 15 and Mm. yeah that means that I can turn really shitty moments where I'm like at my worst and be like this is what this means this is like something helpful for someone and if i can't do that like i'm not going to put it on my public twitter like i just i want to be productive with bad feelings if that makes sense that does make sense that makes a lot of sense that's really good (laughs) brief like sort of side Mm. jolt um i have a friend Andrea Miles, she's very involved in the sort of australia china relationships and increasing them because like Australia needs to interact with China more because it just makes economic sense. And she gets a lot of messages on LinkedIn that are men hitting on her. And so Mm -hmm. for a week, she turned her LinkedIn and her Twitter. She turned, like, the profile picture into some, like, white guy that she found on Google Image Search and changed the name to Andrew. Mm -hmm. And found, like, suddenly she was taken more seriously. Like, she was invited (laughs) to things. Like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean the story we've all heard like a million times, and it just it intrigued me how easy the internet makes that. Hmm. I'm stuck between wondering if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I guess it's like short term good thing for individuals who you know need to have their voice heard, but long term bad thing for society who need to be more used to seeing voices from different people than they used to. Yeah. And there's, of course, that story that went viral where a guy, like, accidentally signed off with his um, his colleague's signature mm. and was just, like, the customer was just, like, 
questioning him and essentially questioning his authority. And he was like, that's really weird. Like, I've never had this problem with this customer before. And then he was like, oh, they think I'm a woman. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to our world. Yeah. Which is like, I mean, a good teaching moment, I think, for other men, but also just yeah. like, you know, what you could do is listen to women when we tell you that this happens. Yeah. It's incredible how how much men don't believe or how much any like people in general don't believe women even other women and also sorry like i'm like info dumping at you a little bit um but i feel like you're rolling with it no that's cool i'm very intrigued by so you know how the brontes and jane austen all wrote under male pseudonyms Mm. so did george Eliot, and i'm very intrigued by the fact that george Eliot's like you know birth name was marianne evans and she's still known as George Eliot in all of her writing. Yeah. And I'm, I would like to read something that explains why George Eliot has maintained her pen name, like in sort of today's world, whereas the Brontes and Jane Austen have not. Hmm. And I would be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Is George Eliot, like, was she alive within living memory? Um, no, she was, uh, died in 1880. Okay. That's a good question. It's a a possibility I think about whenever I consider doing work under a pseudonym is that maybe one day if I want to tell people about this work and claim it as my own, it'll just be known under the pseudonym. It'll be known under a different brand, essentially, um, and it won't be mine anymore. It'll be like this someone else's work. I think that's probably what happened to George Eliot. Perhaps her work was so strongly associated with that name that that's how people knew the work. I don't know. That's a good yeah. question. Well, I mean, you see the opposite in um, J.K. Rowling put out a non-Harry Potter book under a pseudonym hmm. because she didn't want it to be judged by, you know, yeah, the Harry Potter stuff. <laughs> There's like a murder mystery writer that writes under a pen name today and I'm trying to remember who she is. And then there's of course situations like um Kay Applegate, who a huge number of uh her books, Animorphs and the other series are are all uh ghostwritten or you know like only edited by her. Ghostwriters. Ghostwriters. There's a murder mystery writer who like everyone knows is a fake name and it's a woman writing under like a mask name and everyone knows it's a woman and everyone knows her real name and they still publish under the fake name and I'm trying to find out who it was because I think that would be fascinating but I somehow just like ended up on a Wikipedia page with a list of pen names which like I'm just never gonna find it right (laughs) so many um there's of course a lot of romance writers will use pseudonyms which is Fair enough, really. They have pseudonyms for the same reason I have pseudonyms. (laughs) (laughs) What I would love to have one day is a stage name. Like, I I don't do anything on a stage, but I want a stage name. Oh, I've also thought about possibly changing my name um, if I were to, you know, go down the path of being a scientist. This was a few years back. I'd love fantasizing about all the silly names that I could change my name to so that these extremely you know formal scientific papers would be published with that ridiculous name that gave me joy i definitely had the advantage so um 
when you publish a scientific paper, typically it's just your initial and your last name. Yeah. And no one, like everyone who with the last name France is properly related to me. So I was the only S French, so I just didn't have to use my middle initial. Mm. Whereas like both my supervisors do, and I think like a lot of people have difficulty distinguishing themselves from other people with similar names to them. Yeah. I came in and like, what's up, nerds? I only need my first initial. I'm great. <laughs> yeah, I think Serena Chen is a um, a psychologist at Berkeley. Oh, nice. Definitely start publishing in psychology then. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me. Urgh. No, I think that's fraud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's only fraud if you get away with it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Brains are cool. Humans are very complicated. Yeah, very good psychology writing. Thank you. Thank you. you. (laughs) There's also the case where often people will use one name. So Zizu Korda, who wrote Lion Boy, was actually a mother and daughter team. And they didn't want to um, have two names on the book. I think to the similar way, I think The Expanse is written by a couple of different people, two people working together. And so they just made up a name and use it for their collaboration. A team name. I love it. Yeah, it's really cute, eh? I think for a lot of genre fiction, particularly sort of pulpy fiction, so romance and murder mystery are the obvious two examples, you do find a lot of people using pseudonyms, particularly, as you said, for like creatively risky endeavours. Like if they're going to try and write a different kind of book, they'll use a pseudonym. Like that's very, very common and like historically backed up. To sort of cycle back for a minute, um, one Mm. of the things I found really helpful when I'm teaching is the fact that it's so normal for people from China or Southeast Asia or Japan or Korea, so essentially Southeast and East Asia, to use names that aren't their legal names because it means whenever I start a class, I can say if anyone has a preferred name that isn't on the roll, they can tell me. Mm. And it makes it really easy for gender non-conforming students to say something to me before (laughs) we start calling the roll, (laughs) which has just opened quite a nice door for that. Which I really appreciate. Hmm. I do like the idea of people being able to choose their own names. There's certain advantages to it in that you kind of feel because you chose it yourself, this is who you are, rather than, you know, the history of your family hand- being handed down to you. Which is kind of nice. Oh, the other the other obvious example of a art pseudonym. So I don't know if you read the books growing up, but Lemony Snicket's books, A Series of Unfortunate Events, which is now a uh, series on Netflix, and there was a movie that came out a few years ago. Lemony Snicket is, of course, Daniel Handler, and like in fiction, there's sort of a relationship between these two people, and it's like a fascinating way of engaging with your pseudonym as well as like uh, extending the fiction of your world. Having said all of this, Daniel Handler um, has been sort of accused of, like, sexual harassment by, like, multiple women and pointed out as one of the problematic people within sort of children's fiction and publishing. So it's, like, very interesting way of conceptualizing and engaging with a pseudonym. Bad person? Hmm. Judging by these reports. (laughs) I don't know. Did you read those books? No, I didn't. Really? Oh. Mm. 
all of my reading as a child was mostly nonfiction. I mean, I read a lot of nonfiction as well. I just read like a lot as a kid. It is in fact a miracle. I do not need glasses. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I seriously considered getting like plain glass glasses because I was really mm-hmm. insecure of how intelligent I looked. What? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, because I kept getting this comment that I didn't look like a scientist. Uh, and I didn't look like, you know, an academic. And I mean, like, that is steeped in a variety of things, not least sexism. Mm. Um, and I was really insecure about it. This was when I was, like, third or fourth year in undergrad, so mm. <laughs> well, we knew each other. Um, but then this horrible person I know got plain glass glasses, and I was like, well, I can't do it now. <laughs> 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 this guy is the worst. Like, I can't be like him. <laughs> Uh, so he probably saved me from a potentially horrible choice. <laughs> Truly the hero I needed at that point in time. Yes. <laughs> what was the Batman quote? He may not be the hero we want, but it's the hero we need right now. I, I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> what a movie. Oh, God. My favorite Batman comic is the very angsty one. like And just like mm-hmm. dark and graphic one where he's a vampire and like... Commissioner Gordon is like a vampire hunter. It's it's widely accepted to be one of the worst Batman comics of all time, and I love it. Oh my it. goodness! <laughs> I love it completely unironically. I think it's incredible. Is it an official comic? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's what? so good. It's like like I read it in the in the flesh. Like my brother got it out from the library, and I was like, oh "What even is this?" And then I read it, and I was like, "This is the best thing I've ever seen." <laughs> I love how comics are so, like, the universe is so huge that it's basically fan fiction of itself, but it's canon. Canon fan fiction, whatever that is. Fanon? Like the new, fanon, yeah. Like the new <laughs> Star Wars movies. It's oh, God. It like, becomes huge universe. I really want to go see Solo because I watch pretty much anything that has Donald Glover in it. I was about to say. <laughs> Oh, I love him God so God damn much. it. He's, he's so, so good at stuff. And he's so beautiful. And he's so beautiful. <laughs> In the Martian, I was like, yes. Donald Glover, thank you. <laughs> he brings me so much joy, it angers me. How dare you, Donald. He's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, have you seen that beautiful clip on a – it's one of the late night talk shows – probably with mm-hmm. one of the Johnnies, where he realized that, like, he went by Don quite a lot. <laughs> Don and he lover. realized, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he realized, like, as a 23-year-old, that it could be read Don Lover. And he was like, no. It just makes me want to watch, like, Old Community. Oh, God, I know. Which is so good. What do you think about the real names policies on things like Facebook? And I think, like, uh, I don't know if YouTube's, like, pushing for it. But it's definitely using your Gmail names, which happens to be my real name. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I feel extremely uncomfortable about that. (laughs) Like, I know where they're coming from. I know that they want people to own their own speech, so it might deter them from, you know, being shitty people. So, like, I I get where they're coming from, but I don't think that's the solution because it, it just... Extremely uncomfortable is how I feel. Like, yeah. people have reasons for pseudonyms. So, like, if, if they had a real name policy that said you have to use your legal name, I would have to use my legal name, and no one knows me by my legal name. <laughs> like, and this is a mild, like, this is a mild case of, you know, something going wrong. 
there are other people who like their safety depends on them using a pseudonym. There are people who, you know, have essentially dead identities and would be re-traumatized if they were to use their legal name. There's heaps of reasons not to use your legal name. I think, I mean, really the solution to that is to make sure that one person can only have one account and you can call it whatever the fuck you want, but you only have one account. Like, that's that's how you try and um, to mitigate, like, unwanted behavior. Yeah. Is to say, like, you know, you have one account and everything that you say is traced back to this one account. But yeah. fucking let people call themselves whatever they want. That was going to be my follow-up question, is, like, yeah. what do you think about... So, like, there's a trope in, like, various science fiction stories... Where it's like we get to a point where you have your one internet ID, yeah, and everything you do is through that. Mm. That seems scary. Yeah, like it yeah. concerns me. It's not that I don't trust the government. <laughs> it's that I don't trust every possible iteration of what the government could exactly. be in a couple of years. You know? Yeah. This is a hard problem that's still in progress of like trying to become solved by the internet security and privacy communities because you want to be able to be anonymous i think like as much as i hate 4chan and reddit for that matter being anonymous has its uh positive side effects i do think that it is an enabler for free speech but you want you still want the restriction that you have one voice, essentially. Well, you have, like, one vote in the concophony of voices. So mm. when that starts becoming an issue is when, you know, I could spin up 3,000 bot accounts all agreeing with me. Like, that becomes an issue. So pseudo-anonymity. Pseudo-anonymity is really important to be able to say something under any name, but only to be able to say it once because I am one person. Which is ideal in theory but then the implementation is really difficult because to guarantee that someone is anonymous you kind of have to not be able to trace them back to their real identity right Um, but if you can't trace them back to their real identity then they can become however many people they want yeah so that's the current struggle and if anyone has any ideas please please solve this Please do this. (laughs) My inclination is that there are probably some algorithms that can essentially within a black box undo identity. So, for example, if someone was like being shitty to women online, like you want to be able to trace that back to the person. Or if someone was like swatting Mm. people like they do in the US, like um, you want to be able to trace that back to their identity. Except just Mm. generally you don't want the ability to do that. And so I think there is – the checks and balances on the ability to undo someone's anonymized identity also concerns me. Yeah. I mean, the the classic situation is that, you know, someone's done something highly illegal and you need to trace their un- anonymous identity back to their real identity. But, of course, with every technique that we can have to do this becomes an attack vector. It becomes something that people, um, less well-meaning people, can use to attack innocent people. So, yeah. for example, if you're a journalist reporting on a, a controversial issue in a, an authoritarian state who doesn't like 
reports on this controversial issue, then you know that's an attack vector to get to the real identity of this journalist, and that's a problem. So, shit. <laughs> I think a lot of uh, a lot of these hard problem conversations just end with, well, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of yeah. like it's tough to juxtapose things like sex trafficking on the dark web with like people who are trying to disrupt an authoritarian regime that is like mm. actively repressing or oppressing their kind of person <coughs> the US <coughs> <laughs> and it's like well one of those is clearly very very bad but the other one is perceived as very very bad by that authoritarian regime and like whether mm. they're sort of classed as the same amount of bad like and essentially who we can trust to control the internet are two very big questions um <laughs> And it kind of, it reminds me of um, the idea of, in the Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy, essentially the idea that anyone who wants to run the universe obviously should not. Mm. I feel like anyone who wants to control the internet <laughs> obviously should not. Yes. I mean, I think that's why the internet has been so successful in the 90s, because for a long time when the internet was just a baby... Just it really was controlled by everyone, and the internet was so different back then. Like if I don't know if listeners were online back in the late nineties, early two thousands, but you would visit these websites and they would be completely like unique to that site. These unique spaces that you kind of you know you feel like you're in some kind of underground zine sharing type situation where um, everything just felt really authentic and true and um, different. You'd be able to find anything. Whereas nowadays, the internet is owned by, what, five companies? Something like that. (laughs) Yeah. And that kind of authenticity layer has really diminished. And it's strange. And, I mean, like, we're okay with it in a big sense because it's convenient it, it i mean in a lot of ways the internet the internet has become more convenient and more helpful and more useful and i don't know what would happen to my life if google were to disappear <laughs> like honestly time search using bing <laughs> <laughs> like so much of my life is enabled by google's products which is kind of scary to think about like how much i'm tied to one freaking company yeah it, it'll be interesting to see where the internet goes from here yeah it will be um i'm in a very similar position where like google runs my phone my main email address yeah like is how i engage with the world to a super large extent it's just kind of like just hoping that they're not gonna fuck me yeah like, my calendar is on Google. And when I say my calendar, I mean everything. I put everything in there. To the point where, like, I don't remember what's happening anymore. Oh, no, I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it happens a lot. <laughs> if I stop checking my phone, I'm, like, I'm untethered from the world, essentially. Oh, brief sidebar. Uh, yeah. I spoke at a Women in Science event relatively recently, and a bunch of uh, young women asked for the details of this podcast so i suspect a couple of them will be new listeners so i just want to say welcome 
Thanks Welcome. for listening. I'm sorry about the audio quality in the first 10 episodes. That was probably <laughs> my fault. Um, sorry, we can go back now. I just oh, you should. <laughs> you should know that we have had zero complaints about audio quality. And the only thing I've heard about audio quality from people who listen is how surprised they are that we are Skyping. Aww. They think we're in the same room. And I'm Aww. like, that's that's so nice. We are only in the same room for that horrifying episode where I talked about Morgellons. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm so sorry about that episode as well. <laughs> we can go back to talking about the internet now. Oh, no, that's that's really all I had to say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, I think that's where we'll tie up. So thanks for listening to this episode about pseudonyms, fake names, and the internet. We've talked about a lot of things from risky creative endeavors to just like we've talked a lot about authors and writing to a large extent but also about like personal brands the internet and how my life would not be the same if google suddenly disappeared as usual uh if you have enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes please feel free to leave us a review on itunes or the podcast app that you are using i use podcast Addict. i think it's very good uh, you can always find us. Our email is castinginterest at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at castinginterest and we are on Facebook under Things of Interest. Um, we love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love to know any of your ideas for future episodes or things you enjoyed or didn't enjoy. You can always leave us like a voice memo, memo which we will clip into the recording. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode, please recommend us to a friend that you think would enjoy it too. That's um, that's how people will find this podcast, is uh, by our lovely listeners recommending it to a friend. So please do that. That would be lovely. We're so happy you're here. We're so happy you've chosen to spend your time with us. Listen to us talk shit. Uh, <laughs> I have been Sophia France. And I'm Serena Chen. And as always, stay interesting. <laughs> <laughs>